Yeah. I love philosophers. I love reading philosophy. I love listening to smart people and trying to unlock the way their brains work and just listening to everything that goes on in there when they're talking. And so, usually there's somewhat of a, of a brilliant thinker in most of the talks I give. And this week, uh, I'm bringing in one of my favorite, um, one of the favorite thinkers of our age, and that's Bill Holtzider. He's right over here. This is Bill. If you don't know Bill, you need to meet him. Bill's super, super smart. <laughs> He's like 100 times smarter than I am. And so, as I, uh, as I got into our passage today, there's some really powerful metaphors here. And Bill and I, in one of our philosophy talks that go for like four hours, um, he, had, he had explained this book to me that he had read called The Metaphors We Live By. And uh, so I, as I got into this and I kind of found these powerful metaphors, I wanted to get into this a little bit and I figured I could either read the book or I could let Bill tell me all the important stuff and that was way faster and more fun. So I went over to Bill this week and we talked and, and got deep. So if you hear anything in this message today that sounds smart, it probably came from Bill. And if I upset you with anything, if anything I say really upsets you, also Bill. <laughs> um, so there's some really strong metaphors uh, in this, in this, uh, in this uh, passage we're going to read today, and some of them are easy to miss. Um, and so as we break these down, we're going to get into uh, the way our brain works with metaphor. The title of my message is Mixed Metaphors, A Lesson in Missing the Point. So, the metaphors we're talking about are what we call cognitive metaphors or con, uh, conceptual metaphors. These aren't just the flowery things we put in poetry, you know, to make things sound prettier. These are the, the way we actually understand things. Concepts that our brain doesn't know how to comprehend or relate to, and so we find something that we do understand, and we kind of fix them together. And so that we can understand the one thing we... we uh, attach it to another thing. And this actually becomes the way we think, not just the way we describe things and pretty things up, but the, actually the way we understand them. Um, so the definition of a cognitive metaphor um, is <clears throat> understanding one idea in terms of another. Conceptual metaphors are beyond poetry and pose, prose and enter into the realm of comprehension. Um, we generally talk in domains when we talk metaphor. You have your target domain and your source domain. Your source domain is the thing you understand. Your target domain is the thing you don't. And it can go either way. Like you can have the phrase love is a journey. And if you understand love and you don't understand journey, then you would say, uh, what is a journey? Well, love is a journey. Or if you understand a journey but you don't understand love, you can say, what is love? Well, love is a journey. And so there's no real, you know, uh, Rule is just that you use something you do understand to explain something you don't. One of the most common is time. Here's the definition for time. Uh, well, I pulled three different definitions. Um, the indefinite continued progress of existence and events in past, present, and future regarded as a whole. Another definition. The measured or measurable period, period during which an action process or condition exists or continues. Another definition, a non-spatial continuum that is measured in terms of events which succeed one another from past, present, to future. Does anybody have any idea how to comprehend with time based on those definitions? Not really. Not, like, I don't think so. How do we talk about time? We value our time. We run out of time. 
We spend time, we save time, we waste time, we blow time. What's the underlying metaphor? What do we use to understand time? Bill, shh. Anybody find it? We save time, we spend time. What? Time is money. Time is money. We don't even realize we're thinking time is money when we talk about time, but we have this under, underlying metaphor that time is a commodity. It's not. If you spend a whole day doing nothing, and you spend a whole day working really hard and getting a lot done, the same amount of time went by. Time didn't change. Whether you wasted time or whether you spent your time wisely, time didn't change. But we have these metaphors we use to, to interact with things, to interact with time that we don't even realize are under there. Those are conceptual metaphors. When we attach something like a commodity, something we can touch and think about to something we really have no idea how to relate to, like time. So there are several types of metaphors. Um, there's orientational metaphors. These are up, down, in, out, things like that. Like to us, happy is always what? Up. Yeah, we're up when we're happy. We're down when we're sad. We don't even think about why we are. It's just it's built into our understanding. We even say that up is holy and down is like evil, right? Even though we're told we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers in the air. Like, even though we're told that some of the evil things are above us, we still have this tendency to think, like when we praise, we look where? We look up, right? And when we, and it says that God came and built a man out of dirt. He came down and called it good. Like, but we don't really always think about it. We just get these metaphors built in our head that good is up, bad is down. Um, there's ontological metaphors. Uh, so this is when we take something that doesn't really have a substance and we give it a substance. We're pretty familiar with these. This would be like having a lot of work. doesn't really mean much. It's very subjective, but a mountain of work. Have a mountain of work to do. We'll attach this ontological, this thing, to, to it. Um, uh, there's also... Uh, you get into trouble, or you get caught doing something you shouldn't. What's the underlying metaphor? Can anybody find it? It's, it's an in, in, incarceration metaphor. It's a prison metaphor. Like we have this, this built-in, we, we get caught doing something, or we get into trouble. Like it's, like it's, a, it's a prison, even in our understanding of, of bad things. We have this kind of prison incarceration metaphor. His integrity won't let him do that. Like even though not doing that is what gives him integrity, we still say my integrity won't let me do that. We, we personify integrity to make it a thing that withholds us, even though really what you do defines your integrity, but we understand it better uh, if we give it something solid. Ideas as buildings. Uh, your plan is a bit shaky. Uh, I don't really like the foundation of your, of your idea. Like we talk about it in building concepts. Um, so those are ontological metaphors. And we have structural metaphors. Structural metaphors are when a metaphor gets so deep uh, that it actually becomes part of the way we, that we culturally understand it, where you don't even realize that the metaphor is happening. It's actually worked its way in um, pretty deep. Uh, I'm going to use the word argument. Um, so here's some things we might say about, a bar about an argument. Your claims are indefensible. He attacked every point of my argument. His criticisms were right on target. I demolished her argument. I've never won an argument with him. If you use that strategy, you'll get wiped out. 
you shot down every one of my points. Can anybody find the underlying metaphor when we talk about arguing? War. Arguing is war. Arguing is a battle. It's something to be won. What if in the creation of the... And, and what's funny is because of that, we don't even realize we're doing that. Because of that, we don't even like the word. If you're yelling and your kids walk in, why are you guys arguing? We're not arguing. We're having a discussion. Like, even, even though what you're doing is what you're doing, you're, if you're yelling, you're yelling, you know, whatever you want to call it. We don't like the word arguing because arguing is war. And we don't want to be at war. But what if, what if in the beginning we had, we had formed an understanding of arguing that arguing is cooperation? Like arguing is the way we both come to an understanding. Like it's the way we, how would, how would that change our language? You might say, you know what, your points are completely adding to my knowledge of the subject. Like, or, or if someone had a bad argument, it might be, you know, everything you've made has done nothing to make me, you know, understand this any better. Like it would shape our language. So arguing as war has become so deep in our, in our kind of collective consciousness that it's now become part of the definition. And it goes one step for, uh, further, what we call a formal metaphor. And this isn't formal like a tux, this is formal like Plato, like the forms, like formative or the foundation of something. A formal metaphor is when something's so deep it almost takes over the definition. If I say brilliant, what am I talking about? Yeah, smart. That guy's brilliant. You know, if you look at the, word of in, the entomology of the word brilliant, it has nothing to do with smarts. It's a measure of light. A light is either more or less brilliant. So what's the underlying metaphor? Yeah, knowledge is light. Light is, brings knowledge, openness, good things. Darkness is hidden things, ignorance. You know, we have this, but it's, it's become so deep. You know, we have a, the light bulb comes on and we have an idea. So there's an underlying metaphor that knowledge equals light that makes us form our, uh, our understanding. It's, it's even taken over the word. Very little if I say, that is brilliant. Does somebody go, really, is it too bright? Should I turn the lights down? Like, we've, it's taken over the word brilliant. Like, very few people use it even to speak of light anymore. So, this is how we understand things. And these are deeper than we realize. These metaphors that kind of shape the way we think. And a lot of this is going to be going on in this passage. So, that is your smart part. Thank Bill. <clears throat> and let's get into our passage. Matthew 21. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem, they came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone asks anything of you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. All this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, a foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. They cut down branches from trees and spread them on the road. And, they, and the multitude who went before and those who followed after cried, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he came to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. So Jesus, this is on the map, if you look at it, he's coming out of the mountains. He's coming from the Mount Olive. He's kind of coming down into the valley, which is going to feed him right into the temple part of the city. So he's kind of making his big presentation into the city. And he chooses a metaphor. This isn't one of those things that just happens in the 
and the, and the, the writers of the Gospels happen to catch what's going on. This is Jesus actively asking the question, how do I want to present myself in Jerusalem? As I ride in, how do I want to do this? What metaphor am I going to choose? And so he says, hey, go into the city. He actually commands his disciples to do this for him. This is the metaphor he wants. So he says, go into the city, get me a donkey, bring it out. And so he rides in. And the cool thing is, the people catch it. They catch the metaphor. They see Jesus on the donkey, and something in them goes Messiah. They say Messiah. They see him. They recognize what's happening. They recognize the power of this moment, and they respond. So we're going to talk about the way they respond, the metaphors they choose in their response, okay? These are the metaphors of Matthew 21. The first one is the garments. So they take off their garments. It says they take off their garments and they laid them in the road for him to ride over. Okay? This has happened one other time in, in Israel. It's recorded in the scripture. There's no other record of it happening. It's happened one time, and that's when a king named Jehu becomes the king. It was a terrible time in Israel's history. Ahab was the queen, his wife Jezebel, which she was so bad that the word is taken on bad. Anybody have a best friend named Jezebel? Like, we don't even use that name anymore because Jezebel was so wicked. Like, it's pretty much... Um, an evil thing. So, this is in 2 Kings. Jehu becomes king. And Jehu starts out with an absolute murderous killing spree. Uh, this, is, this is where it, it actually, uh, they put the thing down. Then each man hastened to take his garment and putting it under him on top of the steps, they blew the trumpet saying, Jehu is king. So this is the last time that somebody takes off their cloaks and clothes and puts them down on the ground for the king to walk over. And this is what Jehu does. This is Jehu's first hundred days. It reads like it happened in a day, but I'm sure there had to be some travel time. First thing Jehu does is he kills Je uh, Jehoram, king of Israel. Uh, pretty much cold-blooded. Then he hunts down Ahaziah, the king of Judah, kills him as well. Then he kills Jezebel. Then he moves on to the next city and he kills the 70 sons of Ahab. Then he moves on a little further and he kills the 42 brothers of Ahaziah, the king of Judah. And then he hunts down one by one the rest of, the, the rest of Ahab's family, women, children, cousins, everybody. And then finally he killed 100% of the prophets of Baal. This is the last time we find out that there was Baal worship in Israel. So Jehu goes on an absolute killing spree. And something in the people, when Jesus rode in, saw Jesus, they said, Messiah, and then they went, yes, Jehu. Something triggered something in them that said, we know what a Messiah looks like. And they responded the same way they did for Jehu. Metaphor number two. This is the branches, the palm branches. Uh, you know, they cut down palm branches. This comes from, uh, I think I have the scripture here. This comes from Leviticus. My writing's too small. I'm going to turn around and read this. So it says, And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and willows from the brook. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast of the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths or tents for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generation may know that the children of Israel dwelt in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So this, this celebrated, this is the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Tents 
It's like a it's like a week long camping trip that Israel did every year. Everybody went out, they camped out in tents to celebrate when God brought them out of Egypt and took them into the wilderness and they stayed in tents while they were in the wilderness. This is a celebration of the Exodus. They had two Exodus celebrations. One was the Passover, which was more a celebration of a specific night in the Exodus. And there was this one, which was a celebration of the entire Exodus. So this is a celebration of the time that God sent plagues on Egypt. And we don't have any kind of a number on how many died in the first plagues of the hailstorms and the water turning to blood and the darkness and the sores and the starvation from crops dying and stuff. But we do know that all the, first, all the firstborn of Egypt died in the Passover, and we know the entire army was swallowed in the Red Sea. So there's a big body count um, on the Exodus that, uh, that is celebrated with the Feast of Tabernacles. And when the people saw Jesus coming into the city, some of them saw Jehu, others saw the, the, the Egyptian um, Exodus. Okay, so the people are responding with messianic, with deliver us, Metaphors. Okay, they see a Messiah, and they're responding back with the metaphors that of what a deliverer does. The last one, the chant, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We've actually talked about that this in this series. This comes from Psalms 118. This is a messianic psalm. It says, "The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me." It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. All nations surround me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surround me, yes, they surround me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surround me like bees. They were quenched like, the, like a fire of thorns. For in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So in their chant, their messianic chant. The core of that chant is, in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. So the people see a Messiah. They see a king coming. Jesus chooses a metaphor, a cultural metaphor, that will trigger Messiah, and they get it. And they respond back with their idea of what a Messiah looks like. This thing that's been built into them, this is what the king of Israel does. This is what he looks like. But that doesn't fit Jesus' metaphor. Jesus' picture is a donkey. And actually the writer chooses or, or quotes the passages this comes from. This is Zechariah 9, verse 9 is what's quoted. Verse 9 and 10 make up the passage that he's quoting from, what we call a pericope or a kind of a standalone passage of Scripture. And Zechariah 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. <laughs> Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's verse 9. What the writer doesn't add in, which I'm sure Jesus knew, is verse 10. It says, I will cut off the chariots of Ephraim. Ephraim's a tribe of Israel. These are God's people. I'm going to take away the chariots of God's people. The horse from Jerusalem, the battle bow will be cut off. And he will speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So Jesus intentionally picks a metaphor. Of all the messianic passages, he intentionally grabs this one 
about a Messiah who comes in, shuts down the war engine of his people, and speaks peace. We kind of wonder how this, this, I mean, most of us struggle with how this crowd of people said, um, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This huge eruption of praise. One of the other um, gospel writers said that some of the people in the city tried to shut him up, and Jesus was like, if we shut them up, the crowds are going to scream, or the rocks are going to scream. Like, and then one week later, these same crowds are screaming what? Crucify him. And we wonder, how in the world do you get from blessed is he who comes in the name to crucify him in one week? And I can tell you how. When what you're expecting to ride into the city, when what you think is going to happen is Jehu, when what you think is going to happen is an Egyptian deliverance with plagues and death, what you think is going to happen is in the name of the Lord, I shall destroy him. When that's what you're expecting and what you get is Holy Week, Everything turns. Jesus' birth was introduced by angels. They said, peace on earth and goodwill to men. Jesus continually summed up the Old Testament in the simplest of terms. Love. Love your neighbor. Love God. Love others. Jesus commanded us to turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, give away your cloak. He told us not just to love our neighbors, but love our enemies and do good to those who persecute us. He chose the worst cultural figure he could come up with. A Samaritan made him the hero is one of his most famous stories. He washed feet and told us to do likewise. He entered Jerusalem on a donkey. Jesus refused to defend himself when he was persecuted, and he responded to abuse with the cross. Somehow the church has waged war. We've hated, we've persecuted, we've discriminated, we've withheld love. We've judged. We've missed the point. But Lent allows us to face our darkness. We've talked a lot over the last several weeks about going through the wilderness, kind of facing the darkness that's outside of us, the things that happen to us. But Lent also lets us face the darkness inside of us, inside of our church walls, inside of our hearts, our bad metaphors, the places where we've missed the point. The places where, we've, where we have refused to accept our Savior on His terms. And instead we've reframed Him the way we want Him to be. But Easter comes every single year to remind us who God is. This is our God. This is the metaphor for what our Savior looks like. This is the Messiah. The power of the metaphor is in the narrative. Peter, who was there at the triumphant entry, didn't get it. He goes all the way up to the garden. Literally, they've had the Last Supper. He's in the garden. They're coming to arrest Jesus. Peter's so convinced he knows what this Messiah is going to look like that he draws his sword, swings, cuts off the ear of one of the people that are there to arrest. Jesus heals him and tells Peter, you're missing it. He says, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. 
a Messiah who comes with a sword only goes one direction. He says, but he who loses his life for my sake finds it. It's a whole different kind of Messiah. And they had missed that. This is how a crowd can go from blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord to crucify him. This is how you can think you know what you're going to get. And then you find your Messiah hanging on a cross. This is how you can have Peter swearing he will never deny Jesus. And then when he saw what Jesus meant, when he saw what the donkey meant, when he saw what the metaphor meant, like that, that story, as we've struggled with that story, Jesus is like, I swear I will never leave you. This is like the same day. This is, almost no time goes by. And Peter denies him three times. Even when he knew it was coming. Like if someone tells you, you're going to deny me. You know darn well, just stubbornness alone is going to go, all right, try me. Like I'll just bite my lip, I'm not going to say a word. Like what can make a guy turn that fast? When you think you know what you're going to get, and you get the cross instead, everything changes. So here we stand, one week from Easter. We celebrate the King's entrance. This is the day we confront our expectations. It's the last Sunday of Lent, our last Sunday in the wilderness. This is the night we ask the question, whom am I welcoming this week? A warrior? A great general? An emperor? A politician? Or a foot-washing friend of reprobates? A donkey rider? A man, a God so full of love that he refused to fight back. He refused to accept the cultural metaphors that said a Messiah would win with violence. And instead he reframed reality. He completely disregarded the establishment. They wanted to put him on a throne in charge of nations, joining the dogs of war. And instead he chose a cross. And he set in motion this small, fragile, subversive, countercultural group of blue-collar fishermen, white-collar taxmen, passionate women, cultural rejects and slaves. And he called them church. He showed them a new way of seeing the world, a new way of being in the world. And he showed them that love, sacrificial love, cross-love, for you, for me, for everyone else that's not here, for all of those people out there. That was why the Messiah rode into the city. So the question is, are you ready for that kind of a Messiah? Are you ready for this Messiah? So as we come to our response time tonight, as we sing and as we gather around the table and as we give in response to God's worth, I ask if you'll wrestle with the question, am I willing to accept Jesus as he comes to me? Am I willing to accept his metaphor? Am I willing to accept the, the Jesus who rides in on a donkey 